0: 10th lecture in our series as we move toward uh, the end of this 12 lecture series on ethics in the 20th century. In the last lecture, I talked about a remarkable book, a book that's now just over 20 years old and has changed the shape in many ways of contemporary moral philosophy. That book was Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue. And that book, of course, is an instance of one of the three classical forms of normative theory which we distinguished in the fifth lecture. It's MacIntyre's attempt to think through first of all why Aristotelian virtue ethics is what we need in the 20th century and secondly the question what form would such a theory take when our world is so much different from the world in which Aristotle wrote. We saw that a central part of MacIntyre's view was that the major project of modern moral philosophy, what he calls the Enlightenment Project, the project that dominated the 17th and 18th century, that was allied with modern science and what most people think of as the most effective and revolutionary ways of looking at human life in the modern world. We saw that at the heart of MacIntyre's view is the thought that the project in ethics of the Enlightenment not only failed, it failed absolutely, and it had to fail because it was based on a conception of the ethical that no longer fit with the conception of ourselves that we have in modernity. Whereas the classical picture had rooted the ethical in the goals and our aspirations to be, as it were, all that we can be to move toward a kind of perfected human nature. Under conditions of modernity, when that notion of perfected human nature is lost, lost partly because of the Protestant Reformation and its claims that we can't come to know these things, and lost partly because of the changes in our conception of nature itself, where we come to think of nature as this cold and forbidding place in which there are no ends toward which objects move, but merely there's the sort of interaction, the mechanical interaction of particles of a certain sort with no sort of meaning to their interaction, but only regularity. McIntyre paints a dark picture of the modern world, but he holds out hope, although it's a glimmer at the end, in our ability to return through forming communities that would help us sustain human practices, the practices of the family, of academic work, of games, of social interaction, communities that would support rich lives with narrative unity from birth to death, communities that would be in touch with the great traditions of art and literature and human interaction and politics. That's the hope. But what if you were to think that McIntyre is right about his attack on modern moral philosophy, but think that he's wrong about the possibility of recovering the classical tradition of the virtues, and that, in fact, there's no hope from philosophical theory at all in confronting our modern moral situation, at least philosophy as classically conceived. This possibility is what motivates the philosophers I want to talk about in today's lecture, the philosophers that are standardly called today anti-theorist. And I'm going to focus really on two of them, and here are their pictures. Richard Rorty on this side and Bernard Williams on this. Both of these philosophers are in their early 70s. Bernard Williams, or Sir Bernard as he was recently, has only recently died, regarded by many people and certainly by me as one of the three or four greatest moral philosophers in the last half of the 20th century. Richard Rorty is perhaps not of that stature as a moral philosopher, but has been remarkably influential in contemporary moral philosophy. And he and Williams disagree on lots of issues, and we'll see something about that, but they agree that there's something wrong in contemporary moral philosophy with the ambition of many of the normative theorists. I suggested that when John Rawls revives normative theory, Rawls brings back in a big book The ambition of the book is to help us sort of approach in a rational way, in an authoritative way, the contemporary dilemmas in social justice. Philosophy steps onto the main stage of contemporary culture proposing authoritative responses to many of our real human problems. This was something new in 20th century moral philosophy and the anti-theorists like Rorty and Bernard Williams are suspicious of philosophy's ambitions in this regard. There are a number of, in addition to Williams and Rorty, there are lots of other anti-theorists, I'll just mention one others, uh, Annette a very distinguished moral philosopher from the University of Pittsburgh. Williams' great book, and this certainly would rank as one of the three or four most important books in moral philosophy in the 20th century, is called Ethics and the Limits of Philosophy. Rorty's greatest book, although he's written many, is called Philosophy and the Mirror of of Nature. One of Annette Beyer's most famous articles is called Doing Without Moral Theory. You'll see from these titles where, as we might say, these three thinkers are coming from. Williams is emphasizing ethics and the limits of philosophy. When Rorty talks about philosophy in the mirror of nature, he's talking about the ambitions of philosophy generally to, as it were, mirror the way the world is. And of course, you one can see already, I think, from the sort of the nature of that title that he's out to suggest this is a sort of bogus and overambitious goal. And Annette Beyer leaves nothing to our imagination when she says, doing without moral theory. The anti-theorists, like the virtue theorists, are a motley crew in various ways. They disagree about many things. Bernard Williams' last book, a great book I think although it's difficult for all of us to digest it, it's come out just in the last year and was published just before he died. It's called Truth and Truthfulness and it's an all-out attack on Richard Rorty. So anti-theorists not only don't like theorists, they don't like each other a lot uh, many times, and they're they're in disagreement about exactly what we should do in moral philosophy if we can't do theory. But among the kinds of things they hold, and as I say there are lots of disagreements here, are views like the following. And I take here a taxonomy of anti-theoretical arguments from a philosopher named Stanley Clark who did recently an anthology of this kind of work, the information, the graphical information will be uh, in your materials for these lectures. Clark suggests that there are 3 kinds of tendencies among anti-theorists. First of all, to claim that theory is unnecessary in dealing with our moral life. We simply don't don't need to be reflective to develop abstract theories. We can get along perfectly fine by just focusing on particular problems. Sometimes they argue that it's not just unnecessary, theory is theoretically impossible. Here the arguments have quite different shapes but a characteristic shape would be something like this. When we move to the level of moral theory and we start thinking about rights and the principle of utility and the greatest happiness for the greatest number, we move to a level of reflection where we're cut off from our particular desires and projects and things we care about. It's very difficult. For people to really care about the greatest happiness of the greatest number, it's quite easy to care for your neighbor or your child or your friend. But your neighbor, your child, and your friend, no one of them is likely to figure in a theoretical construction about ethics. So when anti-theorists say that theory is theoretically impossible, what they typically mean, I think, is that moving to the level of theory, to moving to the level of abstraction from our concrete moral lives, we're likely to move to a point where we no longer get motivations to act in certain sorts of ways. We move away from action whatsoever. So there's a kind of incoherence here. Finally, many people have argued that theory is morally undesirable because it actually distracts us from the attention we should be paying to the concrete needs of other people and our concrete moral situation. A a very good uh, contemporary moral philosopher named Michael Stocker in a famous piece called The Schizophrenia of Moral Theory who explores some of these problems and he asks us to reflect on a kind of case which has become sort of famous in contemporary moral philosophy. The case of someone who might have read his Kant and recognizes that it's important to do his duty, to do what's right, to act in accord with the categorical imperative and while visiting his friend in the hospital who's very sick, very lonesome, needs help, mentions to him when the friend says, this was so kind of you to come visit me. The friend says, well, you know, this has nothing to do with kindness. Um, I'm a Kantian and I came because it's my duty and it's the right thing to do. I don't want you to be misunderstood. Now, this is a socially awkward thing. In many respects, anti-theorists want to suggest that it points out a sort of characteristic problem for people who retreat into theory and in fact end up doing perhaps the right thing for the wrong reason and have serious character problems. Well, these are some of the range of theories, but as I say, this is a complicated group of philosophers and their their differences in many ways are as important as their similarities. But let me say just a word about Williams and then another word about Richard Rorty and how Rorty's take differs a little from Williams. How should we think of Williams as an anti-theorist? Well, Williams is British and he has a kind of English modesty as part of his view and I've always thought it was quite important in his anti-theorist view. He's a little embarrassed to be a big-time moral philosopher going around trying to tell people what to do. Now this isn't philosophically very important but I think it's a contributor to his kind of anti-theory. When he talks about ethics and the limits of philosophy it's the limits and sort of good British taste. There's another side of Williams though, which I call his romantic postmodernism. And let me just read to you quickly a passage from the introduction. And this will give you a flavor of this of one of Williams' most recent books, brilliant book again, called Shame and Necessity. This is Williams in his introduction talking about his view of the world. We are in an ethical condition that lies not only beyond Christianity but beyond its Kantian and its Hegelian legacies. We have an ambivalent sense of what human beings have achieved and have hopes for how they might live, in particular in the form of a still powerful ideal that they should live without lies. We know that the world was not made for us or we for the world, that our history tells no purposive story and that there is no position outside the world or outside history from which we might hope to authenticate our activities. This, of course, is he's describing exactly the modern view that according to McIntyre, moves us in the direction of attempts at the Enlightenment project. We have to acknowledge the hideous costs of many human achievements that we value, including the reflective sense itself, and recognize that there is no redemptive Hegelian history or universal Leibnizian cost-benefit analysis to show that it will come out well enough in the end. Well, sometimes when one reads Williams like this and one sort of wants to say get a life or get, get over it and get on with some philosophy, but this sort of romantic notion that modern life is without purpose and without cause and how dare philosophers come in and try to use reflection and reason to convince us that something is important. To know Bernard Williams was to recognize this was a side of him that can't philosophically be discounted and certainly contributed to his suspicion of philosophy and the very activity of sort of academic engagement with real human problems, but in addition to these things a kind of modesty, a kind of this romantic postmodernism as I've called it. Williams develops and again one cannot overuse the word here with Williams because he is such a wonderful philosopher. He brilliantly develops arguments against many particular theories. Like McIntyre. he raises devastating objections I think to Kantian style deontological views and even more devastating objections to consequentialist or utilitarian theories. He shows why they won't work. Indeed, much of the work done by contemporary Kantians and contemporary utilitarians has been worked simply to respond to these objections of Bernard Williams. He argues though, and this is where he he differs from McIntyre, not only are the Enlightenment projects of the Kantians and the utilitarians deeply flawed, but also McIntyre's suggestion that we can revive the Aristotelian Approach to moral philosophy through developing an account of the virtues. Williams thinks it too fails. So when McIntyre poses the question in chapter 9 of After Virtue, Aristotle or Nietzsche, Williams says, Well, Aristotle won't do, the Enlightenment won't do, and he's a little unclear about what we do about Nietzsche. Williams' general claim is that all of these great classical normative theories try to reach a kind of what he calls an Archimedean point outside human practice to try to justify a moral point of view. And he wants to suggest that there is no such Archimedean point. There is, as he puts it, no point of view of the universe where we can step outside our concrete practical lives and develop substantive theories. Williams also emphasizes, and here again he's instrumental in starting and in some cases finishing some of the most important particular debates in contemporary moral philosophy. He talks about particular goals of ethical theory and why they're impossible. And and one finds discussions in intro textbooks to moral philosophy frequently where it's suggested that moral philosophy can do these remarkable things. Argument can do certain sorts of things. And one of them, it's sometimes suggested that arguments can make us altruistic. Arguments can take people who are completely self-centered and by argument make them care about others. When I talked before about the great tragedy of Sidgwick's life at the end of the 19th century, it was the tragedy of his failure to find an argument that would convince people or move people directly to care about the happiness of Everybody. Williams brings devastating arguments in a number of pieces, famously one called Egoism and Altruism, against the possibility of using mere arguments to make people care about others. To make people care about others, as Williams says, you have to make them care about others. And you might do this by having them read the right kinds of novels, by treating them in the right way, by sending them to the right schools, perhaps just by caring about them. In a famous phrase, he says that his view about how to make people care about others, to bring egoists to altruism, is to think of it as Hume did: that coming to care about others, moving from egoism to altruism, is not a leap helped by philosophers, but it's a gentle slide where I first come to care about the person next to me, then the person down the street, and pretty soon I'll be caring about even those strangers in distant cultures. So moral philosophy can't make us altruistic. Other people have thought moral philosophy's job is to resolve dilemmas. We're, our moral life is fraught with all kinds of questions of the sort that McIntyre talks about in the opening of After Virtue with the incommensurable premise problems. Moral philosophy should tell us what to do. One of William's most famous examples is to imagine a classic example of moral philosophy. You're put in a position where you're told by someone that if you will kill directly one innocent person, then 50 other innocent people will not be killed. But if you refuse to kill the one person, someone else will kill 50 people. Moral philosophy books are filled with examples like this, some of them getting more and more preposterous as you get along in the book. Some of them have this form, you have a button next to you. And if you push it, one innocent person in Idaho will immediately be killed. But 50 people who would otherwise be killed in Taiwan will miraculously be saved. And then the question is, What do you do? One might think this constitutes a moral dilemma. Can I kill one person to save 50? Can I tell a lie to save someone's uh, feelings? Can I abort just three children to save the lives of 20 children? A pizza man walks into a hospital and has five perfectly good organs, a good heart, a good lungs, a good kidney, a good liver, and a good pancreas, and we got five people dying of uh, one with a bad heart, one with a bad kidney, one with a bad lung. Can we take the pizza man, throw him on a gurney, take out his five healthy organs and save five lives? Now, Williams has great fun with the ambitions of moral philosophy to solve these these problems, Uh, but he has serious philosophy here too. Indeed, Williams argues that not only Can moral theory typically not resolve these dilemmas? There's reason to believe that the moral life will be full of what he calls tragic dilemmas, cases where no matter what we do, we will be doing something that's wrong. This is a very hard view, and it's a view that's led to a lengthy and complicated and fascinating discussion in contemporary moral philosophy. Are there tragic dilemmas? Can we get into situations where no matter what we do, we do something wrong? Williams argues that we can. And you should think about that possibility. Finally, there's a very technical discussion in moral philosophy about whether argument can prove that we can be bound by what Williams calls external reasons. That is, reasons that originate outside our particular desires and motives? Can I be moved to act by considerations of something like rights or duties that aren't connected in some integral way with what I want or what I care about or what I believe to be good for myself? Williams carries on an argument throughout his life that there cannot be external reasons in this sense. And if philosophy has the ambition to bring the external in, to uh, motivation, they're bound to fail. So Williams not only argues against particular moral theories, he argues that particular ambitions of moral philosophers, to make us care about others, to resolve dilemmas frequently made up by philosophers, to bind us with external reasons, these are objectives which we can't achieve. Finally, the main sense of ethical theory, and this is caught up in the other points we've just talked about, are two moral theory, normative theory, William says, tends to be reductionist and it tends to abstract. It's reductionist and it tries to suggest that at the heart all of morality and all of the ethical life is just about rights or maybe just about duties or maybe just about virtues or maybe just about goods. William's point is that the moral life is constituted by a plurality of ethical and moral considerations in this regard he's interestingly similar and interestingly different from McIntyre. He said McIntyre thinks of modern moral life as being constituted by fragments of traditions. Williams thinks, if that's that's the way we want to talk about it, it's always been fragments. As we might say, it's fragments all the way down. The moral life cannot be reduced to a simple kind of moral consideration and to the extent that moral normative theory has been reductionist, Kantians wants to say it's all duty, consequentialists want to say it's all consequences, they're simply wrong. The other sin is the sin of abstraction, which I've talked about briefly already in talking about the kind of stalker problems. Abstraction is the sin that normative theory commits when we try to move people by appealing to considerations that, in fact, are distant from their lives, their beliefs about what's good, their particular desires, their particular projects, their particular concerns. As Williams says, in talking to people about ethics, we have to continue to give them reasons to go on living, to pull them into the future, and much of contemporary normative theory, modern moral philosophy is at fault for not accomplishing that. McIntyre and Williams then agree on a lot of what they're against. McIntyre thinks, however, that there is hope to recover within these rich communities, a kind of classical theory. Williams is skeptical of that. If he had lived longer we might wonder if McIntyre might have finally won this battle, but now we will never know. Let me close by turning to another figure. I think a figure not nearly as significant as Bernard Williams, but someone who's at least as famous and is more likely to be encountered by you in reading the New York Review of of Books. I just want to talk about, Rorty has written lots and lots of things over the last 25 years. He's everywhere. He writes columns in the paper. He writes big academic books. He writes popular books. Uh, He makes it on television. He is in many ways philosophy's representative to the wider world. I want to talk about just one article in closing of his. It's a piece written about 15 years ago called The Priority of Democracy to Philosophy. And this illustrates another kind of anti-theoretical approach to philosophy. The title suggests what Rorty's up to here. He's worried in particular about John Rawls and about attempts on the part of philosophers to provide arguments that would undergird the principles of liberal the liberal democracy, the practices of liberal democracy, to provide accounts of rights or justice or to support the dignity, uh, claims about the dignity of each person. And Rorty wants to say that, in fact, democracy and the set of practices engaged in by democratic people will always be prior to any attempt to justify this. In fact, he wants to say that the job of philosophers with regard to something like democratic practice and a kind of society in which we respect each other and live together in a kind of harmony, the job of philosophy is not to justify such a way of life, but simply to articulate it. The life has a kind of priority. We might sum this up by saying Rorty, who's a great fan of liberal democracy, the kind of community in which we live, of mutuality, reciprocity, democratic procedures, representative government, tolerance, a respect for everybody and everything. Rorty, who loves liberal democracy, thinks that it can get along without philosophy. And more than that, he thinks that liberal democratic culture will flourish without philosophy. Philosophy in a sense is a kind of danger and a threat to it. Rorty in fact loves the phrase from Rawls and he says Rawls didn't take it seriously enough. The phrase where Rawls suggests that we should stay on the surface philosophically speaking. Rorty ends up advocating in thinking about these questions about whether philosophy can provide a foundation or a justification for the kind of liberal democratic culture in which we live, Rorty ends up suggesting that what we should take is what he calls the light-minded option. We shouldn't get so concerned about these things. We shouldn't expect to find philosophical or rational justifications of our way of life. Now I haven't even attempted to talk about Rorty's arguments for this. I think his arguments aren't very good. Williams has brilliant arguments for his views. Rorty just spouts off in a way, but he spouts off in an engaging way that has persuaded many people. What Rorty counsels is a retreat altogether from the philosophical enterprise, which makes it all the more surprising that as I say we find him on the editorial page of the New York Times uh, quite frequently and telling us all what to do. I want to turn in the final two lectures to a number of issues about this Rortian possibility that philosophy maybe should withdraw from the world altogether and that of course brings us back to The sort of crisis that gets, according to me, 20th century ethics uh, underway, the crisis brought about by Sidgwick and Nietzsche, but we will look at these questions more deeply in my next lecture when I turn directly to talk about what I will call the applied ethics revolution and the place where moral philosophy rejects completely the advice of the anti-theorists and jumps into our cultural problems with a vengeance. I will see you then.